Musical Man, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Miss Saigon. But first, how are you doing? I hope you, the listener, are doing well. Patty, we have so much to talk about today. I, I, I don't think we can really spend that much time here in the opening segment. We had some delicious pastries that you brought. Thank you very much again. We, of course, had them with our 5678 Orange Coffee, a delicious breakfast coffee that goes so well with pastries. Thank you again. And we also, I mean, beyond me having about a thousand and one thoughts on this week's subject. We have to get out of here as soon as we can because uh, the way that we have scheduled ourselves in the studio this week, we're right up against another podcast. We haven't really been able to determine a lot of details about the show, but we have been told that it's a tennis show. So we have to apparently book it out of here as fast as we can to make way for this tennis podcast. I don't know. Uh, Honestly, I'm not. I know that we tried to confirm the details, but enough talk about this mysterious tennis podcast. Let's get the show facts regarding this week's subject, shall we? Let's. Oh, I'm so excited. Miss Saigon is a sung through musical that draws inspiration from two sources. Giacomo Puccini's 1904 opera, Madame Butterfly, and a photograph writer Claude-Michel Schoenberg happened upon in a magazine. In the photo, a Vietnamese woman at the Tan Son Nut Air Base is shown saying goodbye to her child, who is being sent to America to live with their GI father. Uh, Schoenberg was struck by this image and inspired him to begin writing Miss Saigon, and he referred to uh, the mother's decision to leave her child as, quote, the ultimate sacrifice. The show originally opened in London's West End in 1989, where it ran for 4,264 performances. It's important to note the incredible success of that West End production, as it was one of many factors that affected the show's reputation in New York. Ultimately, the show became a nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical in 1991. It opened officially on Broadway on April 11th, 1991, at the Broadway Theater and ran for 4,092 performances. It currently sits at number 13 on Wikipedia's list of longest-running Broadway shows, between Jersey Boys at number 12, which has 4,642 performances, and a revival of 42nd Street at number 14, 3,486 performances. Miss Saigon's book was written by Alain Bublil and Claude-Michel Schoenberg, and in general, I'm just going to apologize for mispronouncing these names. I know that I'm probably doing it. I'm trying my best. To Mr. Bublil and Mr. Schoenberg, if I'm not doing your names justice, I do apologize. Uh, These two had previously found success on Broadway with their adaptation of, of course, Les Miserables, their third and final collaboration on Broadway, 2007's The Pirate Queen, would only run 85 performances, so apparently the third time was not the charm in that particular scenario. Uh, The music is by Claude-Michel Schoenberg, 
Sean Berg. The lyrics are by Alain Boublil and additional material by Richard Maltby Jr. The director of the original Broadway production was Nicholas Hitner. The musical director was Edward G. Robinson. The choreographer was Bob Avian. Uh, he is actually credited uh, as providing the musical staging. We have seen that before. The word, the term choreographer is lifted out and we replace it with the phrase musical staging by. The set design was by John Napier. The lighting design was by David Hersey. The costume design was by Adrian, oh goodness, Adrian Neofitu and Susie Benzinger. Yeah, let's assume I got those exactly right. The original Broadway cast of Miss Saigon included Hinton Battle, Barry K. Bernal, Liz Calloway, uh, who we, uh, we have mentioned Liz Calloway before, but I just want to mention that she was the uh, singing voice of Anastasia in Anastasia, Princess Odette, I believe is her name, in The Swan Princess, and uh, she also played the singing, she provided the singing voice, I should say, for Jasmine in Aladdin and The Return of Jafar. The cast also included Willie Falk, Jonathan Price, reprising his performance from the West End production, uh, which won him a Laurence Olivier Award. You would know, I'm sure many of you know Jonathan Price from his work on Game of Thrones. He was also in last year's The Wife. He is also the lead in Brazil, and he was the villain Elliot Carver in the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies. And finally, we're rounding out this cast deconstruction with Leia Salonga reprising her performance as well from the West End production of Miss Saigon, which also won her a Laurence Olivier Award. You might know her as the singing voice for Jasmine in Aladdin, the first OG Aladdin, and she is also the singing voice for Mulan in Mulan. All of my animation nerds out there, up top! Here's the complete breakdown for the Tony nominations and wins in regards to Miss Saigon. So, of course, it was nominated for Best Musical. It was also nominated for Best Book of a Musical. Uh, that would be Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alan Bublil, of course. Best Original Score, Schoenberg, Bublil, and Richard Maltby Jr. Uh, Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Willie Falk. Best Choreography, Bob Avian. Best Direction of a Musical, Nicholas Hittner. Best Scenic Design, John Napier. And Best Lighting Design, David Hersey. So those are all of the nominations it received. It won Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical, Jonathan Price, Best Performance by a Leading Actress in a Musical, Leia Salonga, and Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Hinton Battle. So in total, 11 nominations, 3 wins. Now, a great deal of controversy surrounded Miss Saigon as it made its way to Broadway in 1991. A lot of controversy, I should say, surrounded that original West End production. For one thing, Dutch photographer Hubert Van Es was shocked to learn one of his photos, which depicts South Vietnamese civilians desperately trying to board a CIA Air America helicopter during the fall of Saigon, was used in the West End production. Legal action was considered, but a lawsuit was never filed. That pales in comparison to the other controversies I'm about to go into. So the cast of the West End production featured Jonathan Price and Keith Burns as Eurasian characters. Uh, those characters are known as the Engineer and Tui. Uh, and this was met with an enormous amount of criticism. Both actors sported eye prostheses and applied bronzing cream to play their characters, leading many to label the production a minstrel show, which I would say is not an unfair criticism. The decision to cast Filipino actor Leia Salonga was also seen 
seen as a lost opportunity to cast an actor of Vietnamese descent as the character Leia Salonga played, Kim, is from Vietnam, of course. The Actors' Equity Association, or the AEA, initially refused to allow Jonathan Price to recreate his role on Broadway, insisting, quote, the casting choice is especially disturbing when the casting of an Asian actor in the role would be an important and significant opportunity to break the usual pattern of casting Asians in minor roles. It is unclear if the AEA also objected to the casting of Burns and Salonga. It seems like the bulk, the brunt of their criticism was aimed squarely at the casting of Jonathan Price. The British equity balked at the objections aimed at Price, claiming their principles of artistic integrity and freedom were being violated while pointing out Price held star status, an equity clause that allows well-known foreign actors to recreate roles on Broadway without an American casting call. The show's producer, Cameron McIntosh, threatened to cancel the Broadway production if the AEA refused to relent. Pressure from these external sources, as well as from within its own ranks, forced the AEA to reverse their decision and allow Price to appear on Broadway as the engineer. The $24 million in advance ticket sales was also a clear factor in this reversal. I was not able to confirm if Price's eye prostheses and or bronze cream made their way across the pond, but uh, when I watched the Tony's clip, that doesn't seem to be an element. I think they wisely, uh, they, they realized they needed to get rid of that component, but make no mistake, he was still playing a Eurasian character, half French and half Vietnamese. The casting process for the Broadway production in general was bizarre. No attempt was initially made to audition Asian actors for the roles of the engineer or Tui, though Keith Burns would eventually be replaced on Broadway by Barry K. Bernal. Now, I tried to determine Bernal's ancestry, but had no luck, though he was born and raised in San Diego. I wanted to confirm this information precisely because of the many casting controversies surrounding this show, but also because images of Bernal led me to think he was of Asian descent, and an assumption on my part is not the same as a confirmation. I think that's more than obvious. So I tried to confirm that. That information is not available, so I just decided to move on. The team behind Miss Saigon seemed chiefly concerned with finding an Asian actor who could replace Leia Salonga in the role of Kim. That casting call was international, highly publicized, and presumably only conducted because the AEA also objected to Salonga's casting and her citizenship. Neither British nor American, Salonga held Filipina status, and the AEA insisted that one of its own members should be cast in the role of Kim. They eventually overruled that decision as well and allowed Leia Salonga to star, so clearly no one actually cared about course correcting when it came to casting this show. Star status in regards to both Price and Salonga won out. Despite all of these controversies, we should remind ourselves that Jonathan Price and Leah Salonga won Tony Awards for their performances. So, voters had either moved past the controversy or never cared about it in the first place or never heard about it, which I, I highly doubt. Jeremy Irons, as he introduces the Tony's cast for Miss Saigon, even makes a joke about how much press and publicity the show had received 
received leading up to its premiere. So I highly doubt that there were a lot of voters who weren't aware of this situation. And the awards that were handed to Price and Salonga firmly legitimized a show that would go on to run for years in New York, over 4,000 performances, as I mentioned. The New York Times review, for its part, glibly dismissed these outcries, these criticisms, so it could praise the show for rising above them. I want to give you a few additional quotes from the show's Wikipedia page. Uh, Vietnamese-American activist Denise Hun recounting her 23 experience watching a St. Paul production of Miss Saigon, said, quote, I confess that I felt physically sick most of the evening. The hardest part about watching Miss Saigon was witnessing the reactions from the uncomfortably white audience. Seeing their ignorance about my culture, language, and history being reinforced frustrated me. The factual inaccuracies are too countless to name. I can almost forgive costume errors. I can try to ignore the lie about forced cousin marriage being traditional, but I was later told by the actors that the Vietnamese song the show claimed all women sing at all wedding ceremonies was actually just gibberish, even in the script itself. I naively thought it was poor pronunciation. Uh, this is a quote from Sarah Bellamy Cor artistic director of the Penumbra Theater, quote, it gets a lot easier to wrap your head around all of this for folks of color when we remember a key point. This work is not for us. It is by, for, and about white people using people of color, tropical climes, pseudo-cultural costumes and props, violence, tragedy, and the commodification of people and cultures to reinforce and reinscribe a narrative about white supremacy and authority. And finally, Nancy View of Freedom Inc. Uh, says, quote, If you are a white woman, you should be outraged because this play pits white women against Asian women. You should be outraged that it does that because we ought to be working together. On a related note, did anyone see the bluntly conservative sketch from Idris Elba's episode of Saturday Night Live? The one that mocks calls for diverse and accurate representation in film and TV? It reaffirms the idea that an actor should be allowed to play anyone, and people who say otherwise are essentially snowflakes who need to grow up. It is so arrogant and wrongheaded and an obvious play to the other side of the aisle, which Lorne Michaels has been all about for years now. You know what? Fuck him. Fuck that sketch, and fuck anyone who agrees with it. Let's get a great plot breakdown regarding Miss Saigon, shall we? Yes, I have it right here for you. Let's begin. We begin in 1975 Saigon, Vietnam. American soldiers Chris Scott and John Thomas arrive at the Dreamland Bar and Brothel, which is overseen by a man known only as the Engineer. John encourages Chris to sleep with one of the sex workers at Dreamland, but Chris is hesitant until he meets Kim, a 17-year-old peasant girl who recently began working at Dreamland. They connect during a dance, and Chris tries to give Kim money so she can escape the club. When the engineer appears to ask how they're getting along, Chris reluctantly allows Kim to take her to a room. There they have sex and essentially fall in love overnight, and Chris promises Kim he'll take her away to America. Exuberant, he calls John and asks his friend to cover for him while he and Kim spend more time 
time together, but John Grimley reports that Saigon is falling to the Viet Cong, and their window for leaving the country is closing very quickly. Chris pays the engineer to release Kim from the club, and a mock wedding ceremony is held, led by the women of Dreamland. During this celebration, Kim's cousin, Tui, arrives to express his disgust and demand Kim marry him, per an arrangement made by their parents when they were children. Kim refuses, and Tui curses her before storming off. The show then jumps to 1978 out of nowhere. Talk about whiplash. I have to assume many people would be confused by this sudden act one time jump, but we jump three years later to 1978. Saigon, now known as Ho Chi Minh City, celebrates the third anniversary of the unification of Vietnam and the defeat of the Americans. Tui searches far and wide for the engineer, whom he believes can lead him to Kim, who has gone into hiding. In America, Chris is haunted by nightmares and routinely calls out for Kim in his sleep. His American wife, Ellen, knows he has yet to reveal everything that happened to him in Vietnam. The engineer is ultimately discovered and leads Tui to Kim's hideout, where she once again refuses her cousin's proposal of marriage. Tui has Kim and the engineer tied up so they can be shipped off to a re-education camp. It is at this point that Kim reveals her three-year-old son, Tam, who is Chris's child. Tui tries to kill the boy in a fit of rage and is shot by Kim as a result. He is shot and killed, I should say. The engineer agrees to help Kim and Tam flee the country, thinking Kim's western son will be the key to his starting a new life in America. Kim vows she will do everything in her power to give Tam a better life. That closes Act 1. Act 2 begins with John working to reunite American soldiers with the children they conceived while serving in Vietnam. These children are known in Vietnam as the Bui Doi. Uh, through his work, John confirms that Kim is alive and has a son, information that relieves and rattles Chris to his very core. John compels Chris to tell Ellen about what happened to him in Vietnam, and together, the three of them journey to Bangkok, where Kim has relocated with Tam and the engineer. John finds Kim dancing at a club, but her excitement over the news that Chris has returned prevents John from revealing the existence of Ellen. Tui's ghost, his ghost, mocks Kim in a nightmare, claiming Chris will abandon her just like he did in 1975. Flashback to 1975. Yes, this is the information we skipped over in Act 1. Now we're finally getting it. Saigon is falling into chaos, and Chris finds himself trapped in the American embassy, which has been suddenly closed off to all Vietnamese. Kim tries to fight her way through the crowd, but is unable to make herself heard. When Chris tries to leave the embassy, John knocks him out so they can evacuate on the last helicopter. Flash forward back to 1978. Kim shows up at Chris's hotel room to find Ellen, whom she initially believes to be John's wife. For her part, Ellen assumes that Kim is a maid at the hotel. The truth comes out and Kim begs Ellen to take Tam back to America with her and Chris. Ellen refuses, insisting a mother should stay with her child while admitting she wants children of her own. Kim demands Chris come to her home so he can tell her this himself. 
Ellen gives Chris an ultimatum. Choose Kim or choose me. She was never told Kim loved Chris, thinking their time together had simply been a one-off fling. And she was also never told about their unofficial yet emotionally legitimate marriage ceremony. Chris professes his love for Ellen, and they agree to offer Kim financial support, nothing more. To be clear, he does not want to take Tam back to the United States. Chris, I mean. And this disappoints John deeply, but I guess John's attitude is, ah, what can you do? At her home, Kim informs her son, Tam, that he will soon be living with his father and that she will always look over him. She then proceeds to shoot herself as Chris and the others arrive at their door. Chris holds and speaks to Kim one last time before she dies and the curtain comes crashing down. The end. For the purposes of researching Miss Saigon, I listened to the 1989 original London cast album. This is the source from which I'll be pulling clips throughout this episode as I do not own the other subsequent recordings. Oddly, there's never been a Broadway recording, and I say oddly because it just surprises me. I can't believe that producer Cameron McIntosh didn't want to make extra money and create an entirely separate album, but I mean, I guess in that one respect, he decided to hold back. I also watched, of course, the 1991 Tony's clip, which, as I mentioned, is introduced by an incredibly disaffected and not at all present Jeremy Irons. We start live with Jonathan Price on stage, but then we quickly cut to a video montage that makes Miss Saigon look utterly laughable. Willie Falk's acting as Chris comes off as especially buffoonish in this video montage. Then we cut back to the live telecast so Price can sing... The American Dream, which was from the second act of the show, everyone goes completely nuts in the audience as he begins this number. A car bumble farts its way on stage on a cloud of dry ice, which also causes everyone to applaud. We apparently would have applauded for fucking anything back in 1991. And Price, by the way, humps the hood of the car with relish. Oh, how he enjoys humping that car. It's the most, it's one of the most indulgent things I've ever seen an actor do on stage. I listened to a few tracks from the complete symphonic recording of Miss Saigon that came out a few years later, but in general, I skipped over that so I could instead focus on Miss Saigon, the definitive live recording, which represents the 2014 West End revival of the show. That came to Broadway as well. They brought that over, and that did not get a Broadway recording. So in general, we're not really, there are no Broadway audio references that we're pulling from. Just want to make that clear. This revival is notable for its decidedly more serious attempt at accurate casting. John John Briones is leagues ahead of Price as the engineer. There are also a lot of big and small revisions to the score that are represented in this 2014 recording, including a handful of replacement songs, but these changes didn't really affect my overall final view of the show. Uh, Alastair Brammer has a wildly fluctuating vibrato as Chris, and it is super distracting. If you've ever heard a really warbly sort of bobbing vibrato, it is quite distracting and off-putting. Willie Falk is much better on the original London recording, so sorry, Alistair. This revival also adds a ton of F-bombs. Apparently that's what the show needed. 
F-bombs? Ah, throw them in there. They also make a pointed reference to the character of John being black in this production, which, fair enough, I think at a certain point that was just made canon, that the character of John was officially black. It's like the show is saying, you know, we made John black. We even talk about him being black. He's black. Haha, uh-huh. you see what we did? Yes, yes, I, I see what you did. I got it. Congratulations. It really doesn't make up for the bronze cream, but I, I see what you're trying to do. There is a filmed version of this 2014 revival available on Blu-ray and DVD, but it's a UK import, unfortunately, and I was not able to find it streaming or available to rent, so I was not able to watch that. Uh, what I did watch was a documentary, quote-unquote, called The Heat is back on the remaking of Miss Saigon, which chronicles the mounting of that 2014 revival at London's Prince Edward Theatre. This is a poorly structured, glorified commercial. I mean, for God's sake, I should have known that when it's <laughs> when I learned that it was presented by Cameron Mackintosh Productions. They're the ones releasing this damn thing out to the world. Uh, this in no way addresses the controversies surrounding the show. Though bizarrely, it does take time to slag the original production's director for being, quote, afraid of technology. That comes out of nowhere. They pump the brakes. They slam the brakes so they can just basically call the guy who directed the original show a technophobic asshole. They they describe him as a nightmare. So I don't know what beef Cameron McIntosh and all of these guys, these men, have on this one guy that they they don't consider to be part of their fucking social circle anymore. There is no criticism regarding Miss Saigon except for this one guy and his fear of computers. It's it's utterly confounding. Now, we do see Jonathan Price walking the red carpet of this 2014 revival's opening night in this documentary, but they do not interview Jonathan Price, and I think that choice speaks volumes. What really killed me about this documentary, I keep wanting to say quote-unquote, but I know that it would be repetitive and annoying for me to do that. What really killed me is how they keep showing that old photograph I described, the one of the woman and her child that supposedly inspired Schoenberg to write this show, but they never explain the photo's background. They never say that it inspired Schoenberg. They never talk about how it contributed to the creation of this show, ever. They just keep throwing it up like it's a slide during a PowerPoint presentation. You would have to be either in my position, you know, actively researching the history of the show to know what that photo means, or you'd have to be a Miss Saigon super fan. Uh, The doc clocks in at an hour and change and feels far too long. It's like a DVD extra that doesn't know when to call it a day. Most of the time, it treats its viewers like they've never even heard of or seen an example of theater. So I guess it's my fault that I kept expecting a deeper dive into the show's history. Yes, I'm to blame, documentary. Please, rest easy. Let's talk about the score, the songs, shall we? So as a reminder, all of the clips that you will be hearing this week are from that original London recording. Uh, Let's talk about the Overture slash Backstage Dreamland. That's the clip you would have heard right at the top of the show. Uh, this, (laughs) This track includes the first of three instances of Schoenberg and Bublil 
setting up a clear rhyme for the word ass, which I guess we're supposed to think is risque. Like, oh, they said ass. This must be a show for grown-ups like me. I should have maybe put that together when I learned that it was about, you know, the fall of Saigon during the Vietnam War. But, oh, ass, yeah, this is for me. I'm not a kid anymore. This isn't for babies. This isn't, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. This is Miss Saigon, where people get fucking killed and they have sex. Ooh, baby, that's the kind of stuff I like. All of these examples of the word ass getting thrown out as the punchline to rhyme setups, those, almost all of them except for one, have been removed in subsequent productions. I think they, I think someone tapped these two Frenchmen on the shoulders and just went, uh, excuse me, Messieurs, do you realize how how repetitive this is and how each of the three examples comes almost back to back to back? Do, do you want to reconsider that? And I think they went, oh, yes, we do. Be our guest. <laughs> And then they got it. Of course, no discussion of Miss Saigon's score is complete without a discussion of the heat is on in Saigon. So let's get a clip of that jaunty number. The song that will have you tapping your toes and humming all the way to your convertible. Despite it being about horny American soldiers who simultaneously adore and despise the sex workers they wish to exploit. In all seriousness, the song almost makes the impending fall of Saigon sound like a fun time. A fucked up goal for a song to have at the beginning of a show. But you can't deny that melody. Oh, it's fun. Stop trying to resist the melody. Ignore the content and just have fun. That Billy Joel sax. Uh, one of the lyrics that really uh, gets to me in this number is, one of these slits here will be Miss Saigon. God, the tension is high, not to mention the smell. Uh, you would have heard that in the clip. This is not South Pacific, okay? We're taking South Pacific and we're giving it what it really needed. Talk about slits. I mean, these are real soldiers. You know what I mean? This is real shit. World War II, that was just a warm-up to the fucking craziness of the Vietnam War. These guys are talking about slits. They're drinking on stage. Okay, let's just calm down. I know you've got a cork of a tune here. You know what I really like from The, the Heat Is On in Saigon? And yes, it is ironic, my like of this moment. Uh, it's the exchange on the original recording between John and Chris. I find it to be utterly hilarious. Uh, it goes, how are you doing there, John? Chris! How are you doing there, John? gets me every time. This is the second song, by the way, in which ass is used as a rhyme payoff. So we went from one track into the next and we're doing it already. We're going back up to the plate. We, th we were telling ourselves it was a home run the first time. Let's do it a second time. During the presentation of Miss Saigon candidates, I don't know if I made this clear, but Miss Saigon is essentially this pageant that is held at Dreamland where all of the women, the sex workers, introduce themselves 
themselves and to try to endear themselves to the soldiers who have gathered. And then everyone votes on who should be crowned Miss Saigon. And then there's this raffle. The engineer has been selling tickets all night, and whoever has their number pulled gets Miss Saigon for free. Oh, it's such a charming display. And it's during this display of the various women at Dreamland that Kim presents herself for the very first time to these soldiers. She reveals her age, which is again 17, and she says that she's very inexperienced when compared to the other women at the club. This is what initially attracts Chris to Kim. So we should rightfully right question any feelings of love he expresses moments later. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question to bring up. Oh, you love her, do you? Okay, all right. I will not cry, I will not think. I'll do my dance, I'll make them drink. When I make love, it won't be me. If they hurt me, I'll just close my eyes and see the movie in my mind, the dream that fills my head, a man who will not kill, will fight for me instead. the movie in my mind, it is made quite clear that the women of Dreamland regularly disassociate to get through the sexual encounters they have with these soldiers. It is the kind of language people use to express what happens when they are traumatized. I go somewhere else in my mind. I don't think about it. I focus on other things. The song is glossy and vocally it packs a wallop. So on that level, I can't deny that, but like the show itself, it is so concerned with a marketable glitzy bombast that it absolutely undermines and dishonors the weight of its own material. Sure, these women are describing how they survive being treated like objects on a regular basis, and occasionally they're battered, sure, but can't they express that sentiment with a crystal clear belt? We want to wow them, baby. This is power pop we're talking about. It's really sort of garish and it's distressing to view that contrast. Uh, the, the idea that, yeah, 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 they, this is really terrible what these women are going through, but, oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I, I weep for them, and yet I swoon at the power of these vocals. What a weird reaction to expect to sort of be in a lab, a musical theater lab, and think to yourself, yes, if we put all of these chemical ingredients together, we'll be able to pull this off. Okay, let's get a little bit of Chris's big act one sob fest. Why, God, why? When will we get that? Why not here, I ask? Why this pain? 
Ah, you just heard it. Fantastic. So Chris doesn't understand in this moment how his actions and, you know, his, what's the word, decisions lead him to where he winds up, which is in a room with Kim having just had sex with her. When he asks God, when he throws his arms up to the heavens and asks God why he would lead him into the arms of a woman like Kim, it's like, what are you even talking about? Why are you asking, why do I feel I am now tasked with acting as this poor girl's savior in this savage land? Oh, this land that is so different from America. Oh, their buildings are different and their streets are kind of different. Oh, it's crazy here. This other planet that I find myself on. You're, first of all, you're not tasked with acting as this poor girl's savior. You're not. You're feeling guilty because you just had sex with a teenager. I know this is the 70s, but that guilt would still be there even if you weren't able to articulate it. It's right there. Uh, Oh, the awful mysteries of life. Are you even listening to yourself? These mysteries of life you're talking about. Oh, who can even know why anything happens to us? Ack, ack, ack. Kathy Sunday comic strip chocolate bikini season. Ack, ack, ack. Shut the fuck up, Chris. During the track, This Money's Yours, I was taken aback by the torrent of anger Kim unleashes. She directs it squarely at Chris. As it reveals she is much more than a soft-spoken girl. She resents Chris for wanting to know more about her, sneering, do you want one more tale of a Vietnam girl? AKA, she means another sob fest from another Vietnamese woman. I'm sure you've heard them before, she's implying. And then she goes on, she lays out her story, which is incredibly graphic. She describes every horrifying detail that led her to dreamland, her village was burned to the ground, and she witnessed her parents die right in front of her. I believe the detail that, that she provides is that they, their faces had been burned off. It is extremely graphic. She is not convinced Chris could actually care about her, but this distrust vanishes once the show decides mere moments later that the two have fallen in love. Once that locks into place, Kim is Team Chris all the way, and he can do no wrong. I'm honestly surprised the show allows Kim even this much time to reflect on her past, her inner demons that haunt her, since all it really cares about is the manic, all-consuming devotion Kim comes to have for Chris and her son, Tam. It's like they're saying, yeah, well, let her be a tad complex here, but moving forward, we really would prefer it if Kim could just be the staunch, unblemished symbol of wifedom and motherhood standing in the face of mankind's greatest sins. Can we just focus on that moving forward? That'd be fantastic. There is some very clear foreshadowing here. Kim makes it clear that, quote, she would rather die, quote, than face more pain. Chris offers her salvation, this escape with him back to America, but when that dissolves, and he refuses to accept his son, Tam, and take him back to America. It is the exact dosage of pain that pushes Kim over the edge. Sun and Moon is Chris's younger than springtime moment. Of course I am. I have to bring up South Pacific on a regular basis. So this is absolutely his younger than springtime. It is the moment in which he can marvel at the mystery, the mystery and beauty of Kim. She is a glittering jewel in a war-torn country. He is fetishizing her, uh, which is a nice way of saying, you know, she's a novelty. It's an, She is a 
novelty. No one can convince me that he actually loves her. No way, no how. At best, Chris pities her. He views Vietnam as this fucking Armageddon wasteland, and he has to rescue her. And by the end of the show, you know, he he resents himself. He, he thinks, oh, I'm just like America. I'm America. I thought I could do good in this world and save someone or, or uphold some sort of values and morals and virtues. Ah, but I've made a mess of everything. Ah, the curse of being a man. It's an extension of why God, why. That's his, that's his whole deal throughout the entire show. He lies to people. He makes promises he fucking can't keep. He writes checks that he fucking can't cash to save his fucking life. And he cries about it the entire time. The burden of man. Shut up. John, is that you, buddy? Listen to me. Do I sound different? That's how it should be. Last night I spent a whole lifetime in paradise. Hey, tell the CEO I'm taking all of my leave. We're gonna play house. Oh, John, it's like Christmas Eve. There is a track known as The Telephone Song. For a moment, I was convinced The Telephone Song shared its title with a song from Bye Bye Birdie, but that would be The Telephone Hour. Oh, so close. I really thought I had him on that one. The show is giving us in this track, a sneak preview of just how much musical theater fast talk we're gonna get. And boy, is it a lot. It's novel at first, but by the end of the show, I was so sick of John and Chris's interplay, especially when you consider that most of it comes down to them arguing. I can't deal with this fake pop argument shit. I really don't like it. It's it's very droning and monotonous. Uh, I really, I, I have to note that it's during this track that Chris says, we're gonna play house. He's talking about him and Kim. They're going to play house. Interesting choice of words, Chris. The promise that you made to Kim in that room to her, you know, I will take you to America. We will be together. Do you not? You've been fighting a war. A war. Do you know how much power comes with your actions? Do you know how much power comes with your words is the more, more important question. And then to get on the phone with your buddy John and say, hey, can you cover for me for a few days? We're going to play house. What, what, what is his intention, actually? Is he fucking lying to himself and Kim? I mean, he's such a piece of fucking shit. He is not someone that we should want to follow throughout two acts of musical theater in one evening. No way, no how. Oh, gross. It's pretty, but what does it mean? It's what all the girls sing at weddings. They didn't know what else to sing. It's the prettiest thing that I've ever heard. The ceremony, or Je Voive, is the song activist Denise Hun referenced in the quote I read earlier. This is the song that purports to be written in Vietnamese but is actually gibberish. So the women of Dreamland, during the mock marriage ceremony for Chris and Kim, keep repeating the phrase Je Voive, and Chris asks Kim to translate what the women are singing. He asks, what are they singing? And Kim says in response, quote, this is a direct quote, it's what all the girls sing at weddings. They didn't know what else to sing. It is pretty astounding how the question of translation is brought up only to be casually dismissed. Kim doesn't actually explain 
what it means. Chris thinks it's pretty, so what else matters? I, for the record, I don't think the 2014 revival made any changes to this song. They made all these other changes, big and small, but Jouvoyve is still very much present in this moment. That is so nuts to me. That promise made by your father I will claim when we win to break a vow of your parents is worse than a sin. My parents got themselves killed in the week you changed sides. If there were promises, all of them died when they died. It's gonna die! What's this I find is the track in which Tui has played to the hammiest of degrees by Keith Burns. Uh, remember, a white guy playing a Vietnamese character. Uh, I, I, oh, I'm sorry. I, don't, I think I made a mistake earlier. I described both the engineer uh, and Tui as uh, French Vietnamese characters. That's completely incorrect. Uh, the character of Tui is uh, Vietnamese uh, through and through. So just wanted to clarify that. Don't want to mess that up. It is in this moment that Tui appears and he makes it very clear that he's the the, the Javert of this show. I'm evil as fuck and angry as balls and fuck you if you think you can scream louder than me. I'm Mary McCam, we're cousins. It's hilarious. Quang uh, Ho Hong does a much better job of making two e three dimensional in the 2014 revival. So again, big improvement comparing the two. Hong's two e seems genuinely hurt by Kim's decision to be with Chris, and that slowly over the course of three years, you know, three years of showtime, that builds to a point of extreme anger rather than him just starting at eleven, which is what Keith Burns does. You know, Keith Burns' acting is about journeys. Keith Burns. Yeah, come on, journeys, Keith Burns. Our lives will change when tomorrow comes. Tonight our hearts drown the distant drums. And we have musical rights tearing the night. So Night of the World is the only song I genuinely dig, mainly for the goofy lyric about a solo saxophone, which is immediately buttressed by a literal sax in the orchestra. It's a total cheeseball centerpiece of a ballad, and I wish I could divorce it from the context of this ridiculous bad show. Alas, it was not meant to be. It is not meant to be. Alastair Bremer's warble is especially annoying in the 2014 version of this song. You know, just straight tone it my dude. I'm I'm no real professional. I do have a degree, but it's not in musical theater. It's in acting, acting emphasis. So again, I know that I'm not as experienced as Alastair Brammer, but get that bobbing chin under control. I have been in musicals and I know that you don't want that chin moving up and down and it sounds like your chin be moving. Keep that chin in. Okay?
I was totally tricked by this show during the track This Is The Hour. I genuinely thought this was the act one finale, considering, you know, this is the moment in which Tui dies, and that's a very super dramatic beat within the plot, and everyone is sing shouting to the rafters, but nope, we still have like three tracks after that. Did I mention Tui comes back as a ghost later? This show has ghosts, y'all. It's got some straight up ghosts. I, I'm not going to play a clip from If You Want to Die in Bed, but it is the third of three instances in which ass is used as a rhyme payoff. Uh, did they keep forgetting they'd already cashed that check twice? I, I, I'll never get over it. Never get over it. I'll give you a million things I'll never own. I'll give you a world to conquer when you're grown. to be I don't want anyone to think that I can't relate to Kim's devotion to her son. A mother's love is clearly so powerful and should obviously be explored on stage. We do it all the time in any number of pieces. But when we reduce characters down to labels like mother and lover or wife, we're admitting they only exist on stage to serve the needs of male characters. It is so trite, and I wish Leia Salonga had more to play than this, this grasping desperation handed to her by the all-male writing team. Fantastic vocal performance from Leia Salonga, I should say, on this recording. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise to me as she voiced Jasmine, for God's sake. Her career is a mile long in every direction. She has done anything and everything. I watched her in a bunch of commercials this week. She's charming as all hell, but she deserved better. Once again, another woman in a musical theater piece who deserved much more than the material was serving up to her. I never thought one day I'd plead for half-breeds from a land that's torn. But then I saw a camp for children whose crime was being born. There come joy, the dust of life. We open Act 2 with Buidoy. It is such a weird, wildly histrionic song. Uh, it was clearly meant to sound impressive, but by the end, it is nothing more than a bunch of white guys screaming their fucking throats out. Sound and fury signifying nothing, as the bard would put it. Thank you, Mr. Shakespeare, for giving us that colloquialism. This vocal display is also meant to fill us with admiration. It's meant to impress us and inspire admiration. And we're supposed to think, wow, these men, 
are impressive, aren't they? Taking responsibility for the children they conceived while in Vietnam? Good for them. That's what a real man does. No, it's the least that a man can do. Stop virtue signaling via song and do the work, dads. Stop singing. Do the work. Everything you need to know about Chris's character is in a song known as The Revelation. Tell me first, nothing else. Tell me, did she survive? You must read the report, Chris, but yes, she's alive. You don't know, John, these nightmares, the seen I have seen her face burn seen her shot with my gun I have chased her through streets and I've only heard screams what's wrong come on there is still something more she has a child you have a son It's in the nightmare when I see Saigon Jesus, John, I am married Is this story for real? When Chris learns that Kim is alive, it inspires great relief in him. As I said, he had been suffering from nightmares for years, and the subject of those nightmares was Kim. He was concerned about her safety and her life, but the second he hears about the child they conceived together, he's like, whoa, is this story for real? Dude, I'm married. He actually says to John, I'm not totally paraphrasing there, he says, is this story for real? And John has to say, yes, Yes. Calm down. What I, I'm not lying to you. I'm not pranking you. I don't have bad intel. I do this for a living, so you can be rest assured that this isn't some crazy dream you're having. You have a son. Now let's be adults and talk about this. But instead, Chris goes into a fucking emotional tornado that threatens to destroy anything in its path. Threatens? It does. Uh, it cracks me up when Miss Saigon tries to go all pop opera like its sister show, Les Mis. It offers the goofiest exposition and sappiest statements of intention in these moments. And the conversations between Chris and John, as as I mentioned, are prime examples of that. Just two white guys yelling at each other. Isn't that just the most exhausting fucking thing you can imagine? Oh, my wife, how can I tell her? (laughs) That's what Chris keeps asking throughout this track. My wife, Ellen, ah! How can I tell her? I never told her about my time in Vietnam. Ah! Chris is afraid of shattering Ellen. He uses the term shattering. He's afraid of shattering Ellen like he shattered Kim. And what's crazy is that he's not exaggerating. Chris is adored by women who beg for his time and his devotion. Chris has all of the power, and on a meta level, it's like he knows he's been written to personify the white man's burden. Oh, God, why, why, I ask you again, why was I born a man and into such power? I don't want to ruin the lives of these women, and so I must be cursed with truths. They're too soft and pliable and weak to handle. Mm-mm, oh, blast this albatross around my neck, how it threatens to break me, it does. Check it out, huh? Yo, check it out. 
Hey boy, you want to try my girl? Try my girl, huh? Okay, so you just heard it, but let's go into it. During the track, What a Waste, this is when the show's racism achieves inception levels of ridiculousness. So let's go through this step by step. Jonathan Price, a white actor, is playing the engineer, a character who is French-Vietnamese. And at this point in the show, the engineer is living in Bangkok and putting on a stereotypical Thai accent, which requires Price to do a stereotypical Thai accent. It's so disgraceful. Like, I kind of get the character adopts different ideologies and accents to please the powers that be and survive, but Price pulling this shit of this World War II propaganda accent nonsense... I will never get over it. I I don't think I'll be able to take him seriously in any other project. I mean, talk about what a waste. What a waste indeed. John John Briones does not put on an extra accent for his 2014 performance of The Engineer. Uh, So this just proves that it was never acquired in the first place. It's a choice that Price made himself as an actor. I'm sure he thought it would be very funny for the audience to see him do that. So here's when I sort of stop the deconstruction and relay a very personal anecdote. I think this has uh, a lot to do with what we have been discussing, so I hope that you'll indulge me. So during my time as a cruise ship performer with Second City out of Chicago, I was asked to play an Asian grill chef in a sketch that trotted out every stereotype imaginable, everything in the book. Sharp bows, affected speech, squinting, buck-tooth delivery, all of it. I did all of it. And I only objected to doing that sketch after two months of my four-month contract had come and gone. By that point, I had already performed in front of Asian families who rightfully stared at me stone-faced, as well as my boyfriend, who was half Japanese, and was, again, rightfully ashamed by what I had agreed to do. I got the sketch cut from the show, but I should have done that the day the script was handed to me. Instead, I tried to justify it to myself, to my boyfriend. I, I justified going along with it, claiming I didn't want to, quote, rock the boat. In reality, let's be very clear, I was fueled by nothing more than cowardice, ego, and greed. I wanted to be working with Second City, and I wanted to get paid well to do it, so I went ahead and did it. I was a coward. I prioritized having an end with Second City over the dignity of the audience I aimed uh, to entertain. I claimed that I wanted to entertain them and that I, I utterly failed them by making this decision to go along with this. Uh, doing so makes me complicit in the advancement of racist bullshit, and I am deeply sorry. Um, impersonating another race for the amusement of others It's abhorrent, and I can't believe Jonathan Price was allowed to do it on not one, but two sides of the planet, not to mention awarded by multiple major theatrical institutions. His Tony Award and his, let's be clear, and his Laurence Olivier Awards, they should all be revoked for playing this character. It's it's awful. For the record, that Second City sketch I described, it kept appearing in shows after my time with Second City, and it was written in 2007. Not 1977, as you might, you know, assume, but 2007. Uh, let's get back to my thoughts on the song, What a Waste. My chief thought is that it is way too long and super tedious. This show only has two modes. Soaring romanticism and bitter cynicism. And I had had more than enough of both by this point. Uh, So again, 
I, I do want to, sorry, I, I know that I kind of made a quick turn back into the deconstruction of the show. Again, I apologize. That's been weighing on me, and it, it should weigh on me. It's always going to weigh on me that I made the decision. To, it, it, trust me. If you saw me playing that character, yikes. Just a nightmare. <laughs> I, I was the nightmare in that moment, for sure. I'm not here as a friend. I have a job to do. It's strange to find my work should lead me here to you. Chris knows all about you. I have shown him all this. But I think that it's time you know all about Chris. So I know you just heard the clip, but that's John singing during the track, Please. And during that track, John says... I'm not here as a friend. I have a job to do. It's strange to find my work should lead me here to you. And John is saying, you know, you got that, Kim? I'm only doing my job. I don't feel for you specifically. I feel for all people. All lives matter. John's sort of, you know, he's drifting into that territory. He's trying to not make this personal. This isn't personal, Kim. You know, I, you know what I'm saying? Come on, this is just a job I'm doing. You know, that's, that's what men do. They get the job done. So let's not get all emotional about it, shall we? I winced a lot during this track because I kept expecting the show to reveal it had been the Phantom of the Opera the whole time. I I kept being very distracted by the score here. I would look over my shoulder and think, Phantom? But the Phantom was never there. He was never there. The track, The Fall of Saigon, allows us to flash back to 1975. Everyone is talking real fast. Everyone is talking real fast. It's nothing but a relentless wall of sound, bombastic declarations mixed with wild emotional pleas, and after a while, again, it becomes impossible to be affected by what is happening and any intentions of humanizing a dehumanizing war, which is what the writers claimed they wanted to do from the beginning. All of that is quite literally drowned out by yelling, but, uh, uh, hey, look, we got a big old helicopter. Ooh, built a big old helicopter, and in the 2014 version, the blades even move. That's fun. Right? Don't ask questions. Tell me you are lying. We've been married two years. I'm sorry it's true. He said he'd come to get me. He says he tried to reach you, but what could he do? Please tell me you're not married. You don't know, you can't know what I've done to be here. You don't know how he needed a new start. I feel walls in my heart closing in. I can't breathe. I can't win. At one point during the confrontation between Kim and Ellen in this track, Room 317, Kim laments, I can't breathe. I can't win. That's saying a lot, isn't it? Considering she is a character created by men who won't allow her to win. She is the central figure in a tragedy. All of her requests are rejected, and when she isn't being threatened, she's treated like a delusional child. All of the American characters keep saying, oh, this poor delusional dum-dum. She thinks that you really got married to her back in Vietnam. She She must think that that was a real marriage. That's not a real marriage. Real marriages take place in America. Oh, no. No, we can't take her child. That's not a real child. If we go back to America and have children there, those are real children. Those are real legitimate children that we won't be ashamed to talk about at the fucking community pool. It's it's so the, all all of these fucking American characters are fucking hot garbage. Let's get into the track now that I've seen her. I don't want this. Don't want to fight her. What did I do? 
I didn't come here to meet a girl who loves my husband. Chris has a son, he has to see him. But if he does, she'll be there with him. I came here to help, but what do I do? Now, after this, what can I do? The show, oh, it's so concerned with empathizing with Ellen, and it thinks that we will empathize with Ellen because Chris never gave her the full rundown on his time in Vietnam, but I don't like Ellen. Who would want to play Ellen? I ask it again. What actress would want to play this part? Oh, cool. I get to tug on a man's shirt sleeve for three hours. What a part. The documentary even admits they go out of their way to admit they're so they're so eager to legitimize and raise up their own show, but they they do take the time to admit that Ellen is largely unlikable, and they have tried to fix that by writing replacements for this song. But none I've listened to the replacement song. I believe it's called Oh Maybe or Now. I can't remember what the new song is called. It doesn't matter because it does not fix the problem. Ellen is unlikable. Full stop. During the confrontation, that's the name of the track. This is a confrontation between. I know that there are many that we have to keep track of. It's, it's, it can be quite confusing. This is the confrontation between Ellen and Chris. Kim has left the hotel room. She has said to Ellen, you know, if Chris doesn't want to take my boy home with him, he'll have to come to my house and say it to my face. And Kim vanishes, and two seconds later, Chris and John show up for Ellen to be like, oh, Kim just left. And they're like, oh, she did? They don't even think to, like, go and try and find her on the street. They just stay right in their place. And it's during the confrontation that Ellen says, I don't hate this girl. Even so, it's her or me. It's a fight I can't lose. You'll notice that Kim isn't saying, it's her or me. You'll notice that that never came up. She just wants a good life for her son. But sure, let's make this all about you, Ellen. And the irony of ironies throughout this is that John's entire occupation is predicated on getting American fathers to own up to their responsibilities. But Chris... One of his closest friends from the war can't accept he owes something to Tam, this little boy. He will literally pay for what he views as a mistake from the other side of the earth, where he never has to look his mistake in the eye. But raise the kid? Oh, no, no way! What's that I smell in the air? The American dream. Sweet. As a new millionaire The American dream Repacked, ready to wear The American dream (laughs) Fat, like a chocolate eclair As you suck out the cream During the American dream, the engineer references how his mother used to get high on beetle nuts And while I obviously have already compared this show to South Pacific several times, this specific connection uh, couldn't escape me if it tried, and it was a random little surprise. Uh, Characters in musical theater just getting fucked up on beetle nuts, I guess. The engineer's mom and Bloody Mary, I'm sure they could get together and have a grand old time. Question, am I supposed to like the engineer on some level? Think he's a lovable rogue, a scamp, or some shit? Is he the Dennis the Menace of Saigon and Bangkok? 
he's had enough stage time at this point, and this song is so intentionally repetitive it becomes a droning chore. It's a snarky damnation of American ideals as well, written by Frenchmen, met with acclaim in London, and met with even wilder acclaim in America proper. If there's one thing theatergoers of all stripes love, it's nodding sagely in recognition of society, read America's ills, without feeling the need to, you know, do a damn thing about them. Hmm, this engineer describes America as a noxious capitalist hellscape. Its choking hand kills us all, slowly but surely. Too true. By the way, I know I'm not supposed to talk during the show. Where are we getting dinner after this? Oh, I'm so hungry. Uh, this show is about China, right? Let's get Chinese. During Kim's final declaration, which is known as the sacred bird, Kim reiterates that all she wants is for Tam to lead a better life in America. And apparently in her mind, the only way that can happen is if she takes herself out of the equation by committing suicide. Now I get she's devastated by the discovery of Ellen and Ellen's rejection of Tam, but Kim has been shown throughout this entire show to be an aggressive fighter and a staunch survivor. That is what resides at her core. It's the only fire that the character has, this need to survive. And after everything she's been through, I question why this should be her tipping point. Why is this the exact dosage of pain that pushes her over the edge? That's how I put it earlier. Where is the woman who declared at the top of the show, quote, a million dreams are in me? Now, admittedly, that's a lyric I choose to take as genuine rather than a part of the dreamland mystique. It's a line that she recites during her presentation of the Miss Saigon pageant candidates. So uh, maybe the show wants me to think that's something the engineer wrote up for her as a way to come off as naive and appeal to the soldiers. But when Leah Salonga sings the line, it seems real. It doesn't seem as if it is a recitation. It's a, it's a true statement. She has dreams inside of her at the top of the show. And again, I know that she's gone through a lot, but she has survived a lot. And all of that fire, the dreams, they get snuffed out because the men who wrote this show decided that she had to die so the men within the show can grow and live beyond her. That is such bullshit. Now, you might say, well, that's how the opera ended. That was in 19. By 1991, we should have taken the time to craft a female lead who isn't solely defined by loss. Kim deserved to live in this adaptation. Full stop. Making that clear. I'm not demanding a fairy tale ending, but the ending we get is too crass to take seriously. Suicide is hard enough to discuss and face in the real world. We don't need it being utilized by mediocre writers who want to inject their work with cheap shock. We see that all the time in crummy plays and musicals. We we didn't need one more example of it in the canon. You gotta wonder what Schoenberg actually saw when he looked at that old photograph and was inspired by it, quote-unquote. He claims he saw a mother making, you'll remember, the ultimate sacrifice for her child. But here's the thing, Schoenberg. The woman in the photograph was more than a mother. She's not just a mother and a prop that you can yank out of that photo and throw on stage 
leaving her to be just as two-dimensional as she was in the photograph to you. You you gave her no humanity. You didn't understand that she she could have been any number of things, and instead you made her this. This woman who, who breaks because she needs, in her mind, to do what's best for men. And the woman in that photograph, you know, she presumably, li- she presumably lived a life after the photograph was taken, after her child uh, left her side. So after saying goodbye to her child, she lived a full life. But y- y- I guess you just don't care about that. You just don't care about that. And we still don't. We still think that it's somehow powerful to see this woman take her life. Uh, what are we supposed to think? Are we are we supposed to think no? Oh, Kim, she's she's so she's so rattled by the war. She's so rattled by all of the things around her, as if she's stupid. And Chris holds her, and he goes, "Why, Kim? Why would you do this to yourself? Oh, you melodramatic dumb dumb!" It, it's it's shocking. We're supposed to take this seriously. And then the finale track, the track properly known as finale. I don't have anything to say about it, but I will say that I have a strong feeling Chris and Ellen, if they do take Tam back to America. America, and you have to wonder if they do. I know Kim thinks that this will force Chris's hand and make him take responsibility for Tam, but for all I know, they will still leave Tam there with the engineer. Who knows? But if they do take Tam back to America, they are going to be terrible parents to Tam. They never wanted him, not even a little bit. There's not even a single moment where Chris considers stepping up to the plate and being a constant, present force in this kid's life. Oh my God, worst mom, worst dad. You know Ellen's going to make it very clear that, you know, you're not really my kid. You're not really my kid. These are my real kids. What a wonderful situation. I know it's a tragedy. <laughs> Again, not asking for a fairy tale ending where they all live together in a nice little suburban house in fucking Detroit or whatever, and there's white picket fence, and oh, a menage a trois happens every night, and Tam grows up to be the president. But can we find a fucking middle ground? Give me a break. That's my deconstruction of the Miss Saigon score. Now we're going to get a quick word from our sponsor, 5678 Orange Grove. Take it away, 5678. Hi, it's me, Johnny Burke, looking down at you from the moon. <laughs> That's right, I orbit you once every 24 hours. Me, Johnny Burke, writer of such songs as Get Out the Whistle, My Mama's Coming, and You Better Get Off My Foot, You Stupid Dog. That's right, Johnny Burke here to tell you about the whimsical virtues of 5678 Orange Grove, the breakfast coffee that is gonna make you sing, baby. It's gonna give you a trip and a skip and a skip fuck fuck in your step, and <laughs> I'm gonna be watching you the entire time. That's right, as you consume that 5678 Orange Grove, Know that even during the daytime, the moon still exists, and I can see everything I know, and I've seen it all. Oh, I'm Johnny Berg. Thank you for listening. And uh, I'm going to take you out on this little ditty, which I won a Grammy for in 19... And it's called Wake Up the Teacher, because there's a rat in her mouth. Oh, there's a teacher. And I love to kiss her when she doesn't let me kiss her. I put the rat in her mouth. The rat, squeak, squeak. The rat squeeze me. You're going to have to imagine the piano because I'm a goddamn moon and I ain't got hands. Oh, there's a teacher. <laughs> and I love to kiss him, but she doesn't let me kiss him. So I put the rat squeeze me in her mouth. Squeeze me. Final thoughts on Miss Saigon. You know, Miss Saigon is meant to be seen as this sweeping love story that is crushed 
by the evils of war and indifference. It tries to marry the broad romanticism of Les Miserables with the scarred denialism of Apocalypse Now. And boy, howdy, gee golly, cops and robbers, does it not work? It is indulgent, it is overlong, not at all affecting, and has no message or wisdom to offer its audience. Musically, there are one or two moments that stick pleasantly in my noggin, but otherwise, it's a den of faux operatic arguments. No thanks. I'm also convinced a melody from One Day More is sneaking around somewhere in this score, specifically, one more day all on my own. It's there. It's there. I heard it. I I can't, I don't have the time to go back. I I swear to God, I can't listen to Miss Saigon ever again, but it bugged the hell out of me. So as a reminder, in 1991, uh, we haven't said this yet. This isn't a reminder. We, we don't yet know this. Let's put it on the record now. In 1991, the musical that won the Tony Award for Best Musical was The Will Rogers Follies, and the other nominees that year were Once on This Island and The Secret Garden. Now, Miss Saigon and The Will Rogers Follies both entered into that year's ceremony with 11 nominations each. Miss Saigon took home three awards for acting, but it was The Will Rogers Follies that nabbed the big prize and more awards overall. This is especially ironic when you consider how the West End production of Miss Saigon earned Olivier awards, as we have mentioned, for Price and Salonga, but it didn't win the Laurence Olivier Award for Best Musical either, so on that side of the pond, couldn't take home that big prize because the Best Musical Laurence Olivier Award went to Return to the Forbidden Planet. So the universal consensus seems to read as, we love the stars of Miss Saigon and we will award them for their efforts, but we cannot in good conscience honor the show as a whole, which would indicate how conflicted people felt about this material. Should it have won Best Musical on either side of the pond? No. I have a soft spot for Once on this Island, but that's yet another musical about a woman of color who falls for and is abandoned by a man who caves in the face of societal pressures. See also South Pacific, of course. Da-doy, da-doy, doy, doy. All of these shows are written by white men. South Pacific, Once on this Island, Miss Saigon, uh, which shouldn't surprise anyone. Now, The Secret Garden is a bit of a drippy slog, so while I could never call myself a fan of the Will Rogers Follies, I I think it is the safest bet when compared to the other nominees. Actually, no, the Will Rogers Follies is boring as fuck. So congrats, The Secret Garden. In our alternate timeline, you win the big prize. <laughs> you win the big prize. Uh, uh, yeah, you win the big prize. Uh, uh, uh. Let's rank the show, shall we? Well, this show is fucking rank, so let's put it at the bottom. That's right, below Avenue Q. I can't believe I'm saying it, but Avenue Q no longer deserves to reside in the bottom slot, since at least it didn't come out the gate swinging and peddling yellow face as legitimate art. Again, there are some superficially pretty and pleasantly catchy moments within the Miss Saigon score, but nothing, nothing can save this show from its egregious casting and writing-slash-storytelling sins. So, Miss Saigon, congrats, you're right at the bottom there, and look, Big River, the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you're rising evermore. 
That's crazy to me. I thought you were going to be there for much longer. And by there, I mean the bottom slot. But Miss Saigon and Avenue Q really making a very very clear case as to the garbage that should be sent down the chute. I don't have anything specific for the show-related ephemera segment this week, uh, though I did tip into a YouTube upload of a high school production of Miss Saigon. And you know who shouldn't be singing The Heat Is On In Saigon and talking about slits? High school students. (laughs) I just, I know I, I, Avenue Q, I was saying, you know, high schoolers should be allowed to talk about pornography and the sex, but then when I actually saw them doing it for the purposes of Miss Icon, I got very uncomfortable and conservative, surprisingly. I don't have kids, and yet I cringed with the weariness of a parent. I kept thinking, oh my god, these children, the girls are nearly nude. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammer show, I suspect Milady is ma-killing me ma-presently. Everyone ready? Then away we go! All right, I have stepped off of the musical carousel, and we are going to determine right here and now what our next show will be. I am not stalling. I am stalling. And our next show is going to be, oh, goodness gracious, this is one of those challenge shows I talked to you about last week. This is very much, I think, on the same level as Chronicle of a Death Foretold. This is going to be tough. So this was a nominee for Best Musical in 1997, and that show is going to be Juan Darian, A Carnival Mass. Guys, <laughs> and by guys, I mean everyone on the gender spectrum. I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work, but we're going to make it work somehow, right? If you are able to do so, it would be great if you donated on a monthly basis to the show. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. If you donate $1 a month, you will get a weekly verbal shout-out. Let's get those now. Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol, thank you so much. If you donate $3 a month, you'll get a musical shout-out in the style of a character or a composer from the world of musical theater. If you donate $5 a month, you will get to determine uh, there will be a one-time opportunity to determine which show I discuss on the podcast. And you'll also get access to uh, episodes of All I Ask of You, uh, which is a series, it's an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera in which he addresses the concerns of the villains of musical theater. And if you donate $10 a month, you will get access to monthly bonus episodes. Uh, Those are part of a series known as The Snow Club. And in that series, I discuss shows that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Donations go toward cast recording, movie rentals, and offsetting Podbean costs. If we ever get to the point where uh, the total amount of donations is at or exceeds $100 a month, uh, that will result in my producing a new series known as The Movie Musical Man, in which we discuss movie musicals we normally wouldn't encounter. Ah! Goodness gracious. If you have left a review in the iTunes store, thank you very much. Uh, Mystery solved, by the way. Listener Reagan is the author of our most recent five-star review, so she received my decidedly insane cover of Light My Candle from Rent as her reward. Uh, Thank you again, Reagan, who is also considering assigning episodes of the podcast to her college English classes. If that ever does happen, I apologize in advance for the cursing. Uh, You too can receive the Light My Candle cover if you write a review and reach out to me via Twitter or email. Uh, Here's a clip of that right now. What do you forget? Got a light. I know you. You're you're shivering. It's nothing. They turned off my heat. 
and I'm just a little weak on my feet. Oh, it's so delightful, but you can't hear the rest of it unless you write a review. If you've already written a review and would like to hear the whole thing, reach out to me, baby. Uh, you can uh, stream the show via musicalmanpod.podbean.com. We're also available on Stitcher. Uh, reach out to me via Twitter at musicalmanpod or email that's musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Alex Green for creating our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our amazing underscore music. And that's that doorbell right there. I knew it was coming. Oh, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, Afidashen, and good night. <laughs>